Father, I thank you for the joy of opening up your word. I thank you for the hope and the peace and the encouragement that it gives us as your people. I thank you that Jesus Christ is our high priest and he is our mediator and he intercedes in heaven for us at this very moment. I thank you that he has called us to himself and we are his people and there is nothing in this world Know the planets, the works of the devil. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. I thank you that you pray for us. And your prayers will certainly be answered. And I pray that you would encourage us today as we hear our Lord and Savior pray for us. And I pray that it would keep us from being discouraged, keep us from being anxious, keep us from being worried, keep us in perfect peace, and keep our hearts and minds stayed on Thee. And I thank You that You are with us and You're present with us. And I pray that You would be glorified in this text today. And I pray that in the strong name of Your Son. Amen. Chapter 17. Thank you, Stephen. I Michael for reading for us. Uh, This chapter is a record of Jesus praying for us, his people. He starts with praying for himself in verses 1 through 5. It is the shortest portion of the text. Verses 6 through 19, he prays for his disciples. And then verses 20 through 26, he prays for us, those of us who will believe in him through the word and through the ministry of the apostles. So we are standing on the foundation of our apostles who gone before us. And we are standing on the same foundation they stood on, Jesus Christ, the only foundation. And he has given us this word, and this word sets us apart, and this word gives us purpose in life. And we, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So we need to run the race with endurance, right? And we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. This should encourage you. Let me read this 20 through 26 as we read section 3 about Jesus praying for us as believers. And then I will uh, get back to the text. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I'm in you, that they also may be one in us and that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me I've given them, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them as you've loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hasn't known you, but I've known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and I will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Spurgeon said of this chapter, Can there be found... In all the records of mankind, in all the documents that have been preserved, anything that can match this record of our Savior's great intercessory prayer. He seems to pray here as if he stood already in the veil. 
not pleading in agony as he did in the Garden of Gethsemane, but speaking with that authority with which he is clothed now that his work on earth is done. There is much of the divine as of the human in this prayer, and it is remarkable that our Lord does not make any confession of sin on account of his people. He doesn't come before God as it were with many pleas. But the burden of his prayer is that he may be glorified and that his Father may be glorified in him. The words of the prayer are amongst the simplest that could have been selected, but oh, the depths that lie hidden beneath them. I do not think that this side of heaven, any of us can know to the full the meaning of this wondrous chapel chapter. And may the Holy Spirit graciously grant us a glimpse of the glorious truths that are here revealed. So, no pressure. Calvin said that this prayer of Jesus is a seal that he put upon the teaching, the doctrine he gave his disciples before he left them to go to the cross. He knew they needed additional encouragement and support. He was about to leave them after three, three and a half years. And before he died on that cross, he lovingly gave his disciples what he needed. He gave them a prayer that they could remember. That prayer sealed the doctrine that he taught. A seal is something that authenticates. A seal is something that makes something unalterable. A seal is something that is a guarantee. And it speaks of permanence. And so Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, prays for his disciples, and he puts a stamp on the doctrine he had just taught them. In chapter 13, he had told them that to be great in the kingdom of heaven was to be a servant. And he told them that the greatest exhibition of being a servant is to love one another as I've loved you. In chapter 14, he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going to go and prepare mansions for you. So where I am, you're going to be too. And I'm going to go and I'm going to come back and get you. And he told them that he was the way and that he was the truth and that he was the life. In chapter 15, he told them that they needed to abide in him and that he would abide in them. And he told them that they would bear much fruit. And he told them that he would send a comforter. And that Holy Spirit would comfort them and guide them and they would not be orphans. In chapter 16, he continued to talk about the Spirit. He told them the Spirit would tell them about things to come. He told them the Spirit would interpret the Scriptures to them and bring into remembrance all that He had taught them. And He told them that the Holy Spirit would glorify Him in their lives. And then He told them, the last thing He told them, My peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives peace, But I give you my peace. And he told them that he had overcome the world. So then he prays for his disciples. First thing I want you to notice as he prays. And uh, when Terry asked me to preach, I said, sure, before I thought about it. And uh, as I was praying about what to preach over, not one other thought came into my head. But what do the people at Grace Bible Church need to hear? We, it seems like. In the last two and a half, three years, that we have suffered as a people much. We have lost multiple parents in this congregation. My mom passed. Many others of your mothers and your dads have passed. 
We have seen sickness and we've seen heartache. We have lost children that we grieve over. We have lost parents that we grieve over. We we have lost nieces and nephews and sisters and brothers. We have people that are dying and we can do nothing about it. So the purpose of this, the theme of this is that Jesus Christ, our mediator and intercessor, is praying for us. I hope that gives you comfort. And the theme and the the reason why we're doing this is because we need to be encouraged. There's not going to be a word of discouragement to you today. I'm not going to step on anybody's toes. So that's good, huh? But we're going to encourage you by grace through faith. And we're going to encourage you that Jesus Christ is praying for you. Whatever situation you're in, be encouraged to know that Jesus Christ is praying for you. The first section, section 1 through 5, Jesus prays for one thing. It's the shortest section. It's five verses. Jesus prays that His life will glorify the Father and that He would be glorified. Very simple. Chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus lifted up His word, lifted up His eyes, and He said, Father... The hour is come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, as you've given him authority over flesh, all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ you've sent. I've glorified you on the earth. I've finished the work. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory I had with you before the world began. So when we think of Jesus praying for himself, and he sought to glorify his Father, and that he himself would be glorified, we understand that Jesus, as he came to the earth, as the second person of the Trinity, always existing in eternity past, as he hints to in verse 5, with the glory he had with the Father, he came for one specific purpose, and he came to die for a people that his Father had given him. Before the foundation of the world, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit made a covenant together that the Father gave a people to His Son as a gift. The Son came to the earth to die for those people and to be a propitiation for those people and to be a Savior to those people, to be a Redeemer for those people. And He came to accomplish that purpose. And He accomplished that purpose perfectly. There is no possibility. If you were given to the Son before the foundation of the world by the Father, there is no possibility that you will be lost or that you will not be saved. Everybody understand that. Then the Spirit... As he, with the, with the Father and the Son, agreed to regenerate those who were to be saved by the Son. And to give those people faith that they would believe and trust in the work of Christ alone. So, we have salvation accomplished before the foundation of the world. Jesus came to glorify his Father. Now, what does it mean, glorify? It's a word in the Greek... The base word is doxa, D-O-X-A. The word in its base form means to to give praise, to bring honor, 
to magnify the majesty. The word literally means the brightness or the brilliance. So Jesus came not to speak his own words, not to do his own works. He came in complete submission to the Father, to glorify the Father, to cause his people to praise him and honor him and magnify and to see the brilliance and the brightness that is intrinsic to the Godhead. And he did that perfectly. And the Father sent his Son to glorify himself. MacArthur said, at the cross, Jesus received the adoration the worship and the love of millions whose sin he bore. He accepted this path to glory, knowing that by it he would be exalted to the Father. The Father would be glorified for his redemptive plan in the Son, so he sought by his own glory the glory of the Father. So Jesus comes to do the work of the Father, to save his people, And to give them eternal life. Now when we think of eternal life, we think of life everlasting. We think of life in heaven. We think of eternal bliss and glory with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We think of the revelation and the, in the city of gold. We think of the, 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 uh, the temple that comes down from heaven and hovers. We, we think of how big it is. Fifteen hundred cubits high and wide and deep. Enough for millions of his people to dwell in. That's the right way to think about eternal life. But eternal life is more than that. It's the abundant life we're supposed to have right now. God's Spirit lives in us. And his Spirit gives us joy. And his Spirit bears fruit in us. And his Spirit creates purpose in us. That is abundant life. To know Jesus Christ. Do you know what it means to know somebody? First of all, you have to have an intellectual assent of who that person is. And how do you know that? This book. This book reveals to us what He has chosen to reveal to us. And so we can have abundant life beginning with a knowledge of who He is. If you don't read this book, you have no understanding of who He is. You do not understand that He is all-powerful. You do not understand that He's all-knowing. You don't understand He's always present. You don't understand that though He transcends time and space, He is a maid and He is near to you and He actually inclines His ear to hear the prayers of His people. That's what it means to have eternal life. To know Jesus. To know that He is your Redeemer and He is your Savior and He's your Lord. So as we begin this, I said that Jesus is praying for his people. Let's make this personal. I know those of you who are OCD and have to fill out all blanks. So here's one. Jesus is praying for blank and put your name in there. Let's make this personal. Jesus is praying for Carrie Gibson and Ruby Sargent and Keith and my wife and my son. He's praying for you. Let's make it more plain. God is praying for you. Your Redeemer is praying for you. The King of kings and Lord of lords is praying for you. 
Jehovah Jireh, our provider, Jehovah Zidkenu, Jehovah Megadishim, El Shaddai, God Almighty, the Prince of Peace, is praying for that name you just put in the blank. That should encourage you. Next time you get filled with anxiety or fear or worry or what am I going to do or feel sorry for yourself or wonder how things are going to pan out, Jesus Christ is praying for you. I hope that encourages you. Jesus prayed that He would glorify the Father. What Jesus is desiring in all of His people is genuine worship. He prays. He says God is a spirit. And He seeks people to worship Him in spirit. So I pray that you would understand who He is, that you would have eternal life in His Son, and you would come to this realization what worship really is. Personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I say this all the time. A lot of people I know who claim to be Christians, they call them theoretical Christians. They know about Him. They read some from His, but it's not. It doesn't create a passion in their soul. And it becomes a, a remote, it becomes ritualistic, it becomes external. But I'm talking about knowing Christ is to have a passion in your soul for Him and to sense His Spirit leading you and guiding you. That's what Jesus is praying for. The event that accomplishes this purpose is the death and burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As he submits to the Father's will, Father promises him that he's going to give him a name that is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father's glorified. Son is glorified. So he prays for us and he encourages us. The outcome of the crucifixion is this, that all that you have given me, will come to me. Look at John chapter 6 as we're looking at this. John chapter 6. As Jesus was having a discussion with the, the people and with the Pharisees, they wanted to see signs. They didn't have faith. They wanted to see miraculous events. And they said, show us the works of God. Look at John six twenty nine. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God. You want to see a work? Here it is. That you believe in Him whom He sent. Look at verse 30, 35. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me and not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I'll by no means cast out. For I've come from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he's given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son... And believes in Him may have everlasting life. And I will raise Him up at the last day. Jesus prays for Himself to be glorified and His Father to be glorified. That is That event that accomplishes that purpose is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and His ascension into glory. And the outcome of that event is that all of God's people are saved. Not one of them is lost. 
So, mom and dad, as you pray for your darling daughters and your, and your dads and your sons, you trust the work of Christ. That he will not lose any of his sheep. He will find his sheep. His sheep may be battered and torn by the wolves and they may be bleeding and they may be unrecognizable. They may get caught in the thorns in the thicket and filled with briars. But the Son will find them all. Not one of them will be lost and He will bring them to the Father. So you trust in that. We don't trust in our lost family members to come to Christ because they're dead and their trespasses and sin. They cannot come and they cannot believe. But we have a Savior who will and can save them. We trust in Him alone for their salvation. And so we pray in full assurance of faith, not trusting in a radical change that they themselves do to themselves, but that God changes them. He changes their will and their desires, and He gives them faith. That's what we trust in, and that's whom we trust in. So, we call this a great doctrine in the faith, particular redemption. We call this God's purpose in sending His Son and to glorify His Son so that we would have complete union on the cross with Him is that He came to die for those He gave. It's a personal relationship. Jesus prays for that. We trust in that. Romans eight twenty nine. If you don't know this verse... It should give you great confidence in the salvation that's of the Lord. Whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that there might, that we might be, He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Whom He predestined, He called. Whom He called, He justified. And whom He justified, He what? Glorified. The promise, the chain of salvation, unbreakable. Jesus prayed to glorify the Father through this plan of salvation. Second thing. Not bad, a little off. Second thing he prays for his disciples. Those whom he chose. He chose twelve. For those of you, someone asked me last week when we were talking about a psalm, did Jesus know Judas Iscariot would do what he did? Yes, he did. Jesus said, I chose you twelve and is not one of you the devil. And he did it that Scripture may be fulfilled. But he chose a people, apostles, and their job. He, they were the sent ones. They are the foundation uh, stones upon which Christ is the, is the sure foundation. And they are going to be pillars in heaven. Twelve of them. And they will be on them. There will be the twelve apostles written down. So now we're praying for the apostles. And uh, I'm obviously not going to exegete each verse. This is an overview Uh, But let's talk about a couple of things in your notes if you want to write these down. He's praying for his disciples. First thing he prays, that they will be kept. We see this in verse 6, 11, and 12. Listen to Jesus praying for his disciples. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have what? Kept your word. Verse 11 Jesus praying, we see, now I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those you have given me. Verse 12, Jesus prays, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. This is a doctrine of faith we call eternal security. 
Jesus prayed that the disciples would be kept permanently and finally secure. Okay? You cannot lose your salvation. Those who believe that they can lose their salvation, I have found in my life, believe that they had something to do with their salvation to begin with. And there are many who claim to be believers, but fall away. And 1 John 2.19 says, They were of us, but they did not stay with us. Right? Because, let me, let me quote, let me read that before I booger it in my uh, rememorization. 1 John 2.19, excuse me, 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued to be with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Jesus prays for the eternal security of his disciples. Now, when it says, I've kept them, I've kept them, I've kept them in my name, I've kept them in your word. The word kept does not mean that the disciples would not have trouble. The word kept does not mean that the disciples would not suffer persecution. It's the opposite. Jesus said all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, right? And and it doesn't say that the disciples would not have difficult days. It doesn't say that there would be faith crises in the disciples' life, in the disciples' life. It means that they will be ultimately and finally held. They will not lose their salvation. They will not fall away. Remember Job? He was one of God's, and God kept him through his suffering. Remember Paul? He said, Jesus... I'm praying that you'll take away this thorn out of my side. He prayed three times. And Jesus said, no. My grace is sufficient for thee. In, my, in your weakness, my strength is made great. Right? And so he told them, no. Jesus may say no. He may say yes. He may say wait. Job experienced the truth that he was kept. And at the end of Job's life, However long that crisis lasted through the death of his family and the loss of everything he had so that he sat in ashes and he comforted himself by cutting off the boils with, with pottery, broken pottery, he finally said, I know my Redeemer lives. Jesus didn't promise to be smooth, but he promised to keep us. The greatest illustration in the Scripture is Peter. Peter denied Christ three times after he said, though everybody deny you, not me. Jesus had prophesied this and told this, and Jesus said, I'm praying for you, Peter. Not that you're not going to fall, not that you're going to blaspheme me or deny me, but there's a purpose in why you did this. I'm not the cause of this, but I allow this because I have a greater purpose in this. Look at Luke 22. When Jesus prays that we be kept, He doesn't promise freedom from trouble, freedom from persecution, but He promises to cause us to persevere through it because He is preserving us. Look what He prayed for Peter. Chapter 22, verses 31 through 32. This should be a comfort to you. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, 
Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fall, fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Jesus knew the failure that was about to come upon a proud, arrogant Peter. And, Peter's, and Jesus told Peter, you're going to fail. But you're also going to return to me because my grace is going to bring you back to me. And I'm going to use you. And this is the same Peter, he said, upon this rock, this little lively stone, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. That's how God used the denial of Peter as he prayed for him to keep him despite Peter and what he did. I hope that encourages you. We fail, we fall, we're flesh, we're flesh and bone. But God isn't. Christ is our Savior and He's our Redeemer. So He prays that they will be kept. I have many verses to read, and I'm going to read them. John chapter 10. As Jesus promises to keep His disciples, we are the same, we are sheep, and He describes this. Look at uh, John chapter 10. My favorite metaphor in Scripture is that of sheep. Jesus speaking of us, speaking of His disciples. He said, chapter 10, John, Most assuredly I say unto you, who doesn't enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his sheep by name, and he leads them out. And when he brings out his sheep, his own sheep, for they know his voice. And they'll by no means follow a stranger, but will flee for him. They don't know the voice of a stranger. Jesus used this illustration, but they didn't understand the things he spoke to them. Verse 11, chapter 10. I'm the good shepherd. good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. A hareling who is not the shepherd. One who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters him. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. I'm known by my own as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, they're not Jews, they're Gentiles, that I also will bring them in. And they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. And then the great words of verse 25. Jesus answered and said, I told you, you don't believe the works I do in my Father's name. They bear witness of me. But you don't believe because you're not sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, they follow me, and I will give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my Father's hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He prays for his disciples. His disciples will be kept, and we will be kept. He prays that he would, they would be kept from the evil one. Turn back to John. He prays that they'll be kept, and he prays that they will be kept from the evil one. And that is verse 15. That means that they are kept from being pried away. The devil wants to sift us as wheat, as we've learned from Peter's example he wants to destroy the work of Christ. He wants to stop salvation. He wants to save himself. And so he will be an accuser of us, the brethren. He accuses us before the throne night and day. 
He is a roaring lion. He wants to devour you. Jesus warns his disciples that there's going to be someone who hates them and wants to destroy them. And he prays that they will be kept from the evil one and we are kept from the evil one. This is a word to us. We are in dangerous territory, enemy territory. We have an enemy who hates us. The world hates us. The devil hates us. The culture hates us. But they hated Jesus before they hated us. And so it is a badge of honor for us to be bold and to be faithful because we know we cannot be separated from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. He has promised to keep us from the evil one. Next one, I love this one. It tells us in verse 13 in, in, in reverse order. But now I come to you in these things I speak in the world that they may have joy. Jesus prays for the disciples' joy. And he prays for our joy. Joy means what? Internal contentment despite of circumstances, right? We can have joy in the suffering. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials and tribulations. God is working in that to make us conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. So Jesus prays for joy. Terry, when he encouraged me with a prayer and a text before today, one thing he said that I noticed, he said, I pray that you will have joy in preaching. This is a privilege to open up God's Word and tell His people that we have a Savior that prays for them. And He prays for our joy. This joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It is not natural to us. But it is a fruit of the Spirit, along with peace and joy and love. He creates this in us. So Jesus prays for the disciples to be joyful, not conditional upon the world, not conditional upon what our government does tomorrow, or what wars and rumors of wars, what happens tomorrow. But joy is intrinsic to our being God's people. And this is a hope we have, and that hope purifies our souls as He is pure. So Jesus prays that we would have joy. Even in the most difficult circumstances, He prays for us. Then He prays that the disciples will fulfill the purposes they've been given. Fulfill the purposes they've been given. Verse 18, As you sent me into the world, I send them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they may be sanctified by the truth. We notice this this prayer for their purpose in life. Everybody wants to know what their purpose in life is. Jesus gave us our purpose in life, and it is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Westminster Confession. We have a purpose in life, and we are to be what? We are to be ambassadors for Christ and ministers of reconciliation. In Matthew 28, 20, he said, Go into the world and make disciples of all nations, for lo, I am with you always, even into the end of the earth. He told us in 2 Corinthians, if you'll turn there, Paul speaking to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is the purpose that Jesus prayed for his disciples, and it is our purpose. It's the reason we exist. It's the reason we exist. 2 Corinthians 5, 
17. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away and all things become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given what? Us. The ministry of reconciling people to God. That is that God is in Christ, reconciled the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and is committed to us the word of reconciliation. We have a gospel to share with men and women, reconciling them to God through Christ. Now then, we are ambassadors. We represent Christ in the world. That is our purpose. We represent Christ in the world. So God is pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. And here's the definition. This is, this is how. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We preach the substitutionary work of Christ. That's how we represent God. That's how we reconcile men to God. And that's how we are ambassadors. The gospel, simplistic, true, we compel men to come to Christ. And he calls men. And we notice through all this, I don't have time to develop it in text, the importance of the word. You cannot accomplish the purpose which God has sent us without the Word. He says to set them apart with the Word, with the truth. Thy Word is truth. The Word has an emphatic role. Verse 8, verse 7, verse 18, verse 14, verse 17. The critical element of the Word. That's what we do here at Grace Bible. We teach you the Word so that the Word would transform your mind and conform your heart. That's how we accomplish the purposes that Christ has sent us. Lastly, in nine short minutes, I'm on a time frame, hard time limit. The last section, Jesus prays for us who will believe in him. And we read that in chapter, in verses 20 through 21. He prays for us who would believe. God does not go against your will. But he changes your will. And he tells us that his people will be volunteers in the day of his power. I've heard that all my life. God's not a gentleman. He's not going to go against your will. That is poppycock. Thank God he doesn't rely on your sin nature who cannot do anything but sin and would never come to him. But he changes that will and he gives you faith and you, He draws you to Himself. And He regenerates your heart and mind and gives you faith. That's the God we serve. And He prays in this verse 20. He says, I don't pray for these alone, but for those who will. Didn't say might. Didn't say could. Will believe. As you read the great Psalm 22, which is a messianic psalm. The Holy Spirit gives us understanding that this psalm is not just about David. It's about Christ. And you see this psalm divided into two sections. In first 21 verses, it's Jesus dying on the cross, being forsaken, being a worm, seeing his bones, uh, dying of thirst and starvation and dehydration. It's crushing. But verse 22, 22, 22. 
Verse 21, he's praying. He says, you've answered me. And then he says, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's. He rules over the nations. Camp out on 30 and 31. A posterity shall serve him. And it will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. That he has done this. Jesus prays for those who will believe through the foundation stone that the apostles have laid. And they will come. And so he prays for them. And they will believe it is God's work as we've read we must come to God through faith. Philippians 1, 6 tells us that we are confident in this very thing, that he who began the work in us will complete us until the day of Jesus Christ. 2.13 Philippians tells us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is he who works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. So Jesus prays that those who will believe will come to him, and we come Because Christ prays for us and he came to die for us a people. And it tells us in Ephesians 2.10 that we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. What? To do good works which have been pre-prepared that we should do. And so we come. We stand through the centrality of the world. We seek him because of his prayers for us. And we're greatly confident. Paul prayed this great prayer. He spoke this great prayer in 2 Corinthians. It's a humbling uh, bit of text. But if you think that you differ for any other reason but by the grace of God, hear this. Hear this, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, let's go with verse 1. Let's go to chapter 1, verse 26. Don't want to skip any of this. Uh, chapter 1, 26 through 31. Uh, it'd help if I was in the right book. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26, for you see your calling, brethren. 1 Corinthians 1, 26, for you see your calling, brethren. Not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world and things which are despised. God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence, but of him you are in Christ, who became our wisdom from God, in righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, that it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Jesus prayed that we will believe, and we do, to his glory. He prays that we will believe, and we do. He prays that we'll be one. What does that mean to be one? Does that mean we have to agree on every single doctrinal thing? No. It means that we have the mind of Christ, that we agree who the Savior is, we agree how we're saved, we agree what He accomplished on the cross. We have a purpose that's the same. We have a Savior who's the same. We have the Spirit who's the same. We have a hope that's the same. He prays it will be one. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, sums up the unity that Jesus prays for. He prays that we will be one. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 1. He said, We're to walk worthy the calling which you're called with lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep what? The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who's above all, through all, and in you all. That's what he's praying for, our unity and our oneness. We have the same perspectives. We have the same priorities. We have the same tasks. We have the same love. And that oneness tells the world and shows the world whose we are and whomse we are, and that the world may believe. And we are perfected in that love, Scripture tells us. And MacArthur says the idea here is that we'll be brought together in the same spiritual life, around the same truth that saves. We are allowed to participate in His glory. And when we do that, the world, though they may not confess it, though they may not turn, they know we are Christians by our love. And they know that we have a commonness with one another. What else can explain the divergency of a body of Christ? There are many of us who are not in the same economic chambers, categories. We are not politically bent the same way on all aspects, perhaps. We are not ideologically ideologically unified on all things, but we are unified in who Christ is, who our Savior is, who our hope is in, the need for a Savior, the need to have our sins propitiated, the hope we have in Christ. And then lastly, lastly, Christ prays that, Father, verse 24, Father, I desire that those you have given me May be with we may be with me where my where I am, that they may behold my glory. Jesus prays that we're going to be with Him in eternity. You know, I read earlier Spurgeon said, "I don't suppose that all will ever be able to fully comprehend this chapter." You know that's true because Ephesians two seven tells us that in the ages to come. He, God, is going to show us His kindness and riches towards us in Christ Jesus. It's going to take eternity for us to understand and we'll never be able to come to complete understanding of grace in Christ Jesus. He prays that we're going to be with Him. We're going to be with Him. Closing on these verses, these precious verses, 1 Thessalonians 4. We know this verse. We trust this verse. This is Jesus praying for us. This is Him coming to get us. This is being with Him. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who've died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that you who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means prepare those who are asleep, precede those who are asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. We which are alive and remain will be caught up together with Him in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. And then what does it say? Comfort one another with these words. Jesus prays that we're going to be with Him, and we're going to be with Him. We have a place, Scripture says, that is reserved for us, and it is kept for us, and it is guaranteed for us. So, friends, the next time you are in despair, you are disillusioned, when you are having a pity party and you think you're the only one left, when you do not despair of life, you despair of hope, you don't want to get up in the morning, Jesus Christ is praying for you. 
He's praying for you that you're going to be with Him, that you're going to be kept, that you will have joy in Him. And I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, that if God is for you, who can be against you? If God didn't spare His own Son, but freely gave us up for His own Son, how shall He not freely give us all things? He's working all things together for our good. To those of us who love God, who are called according to His purposes. Thank you, Father, for this love letter. Thank you that Jesus Christ prays for us. I thank you that He's our mediator and that He is our high priest. And He intercedes for us. He brings petitions to the Father as before a king. And He reconciles us to God in Christ Jesus. We thank you for these, these prayers that will be answered and that cannot possibly not be answered. Give us this hope and give us this commitment and give us this trust in Christ alone. He is sufficient. Keep us from discouragement. Keep us from being disillusioned. But help us to be bold and to fight the good fight and to finish the race you've given us to run because our redemption is nearer now than when we first believed. And that's a great hope. And that purifies us as Christ is pure. Amen.